0: Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, lead pastor Josh Karstensen continues a series in Hebrews 11 called Something Better. God tests Abraham by asking him to sacrifice his only son. It's a bizarre command that seems so wrong, especially after Abraham waited 25 years for God to fulfill his promise of giving him a son. But ultimately, the test is asking if Abraham trusts God, even in difficult times. What are you willing to give up to say, I trust you, Lord? Also, during August, we're focusing on the spiritual discipline of simplicity. What is one way you can focus less on wealth and material goods and more on God? For example, before making any purchase this week, pause and thank God for what you already have. Now, here's today's message.
1: So, a couple weeks ago, uh, two weeks ago actually to today, our our lead staff and spouses took off on a retreat down to Northern California. Uh, We went to my in law's house. They live in a cabin kind of in the middle of nowhere between Eureka and Redding uh, on the Trinity River. And to get there, you really got to go in the middle of nowhere. If you know geography very well, you go south for a while, you hit Grants Pass, and then you head west, and you go to a little town called Cave Junction, and then you literally just go straight down for about three hours from there. and uh, you go for about uh, 50 miles through this absolute wilderness, which you couldn't have driven the last couple of years because there was a massive fire that went through and the road's been closed. And so this is the normal route that we go there. But this year it was open and it was literally driving through scorched earth. You know, it burned to a crisp everything, but it kind of gave us a unique view. We could see things that I've never been able to see before because typically you've got trees all over and you're kind of driving in a tunnel, but it was wide open and Tara's over there smiling at me because she says to me while we're driving, man, this is like the elephant graveyard from the lion's den. And it's <laughs> kind of this weird, ominous drive, but um, we make the rest of it and we get there and we're there in, at night. It's, I don't know, 9.30 or 10 by the time that we get there and we're unloading the car. And uh, we're trying to figure out, okay, who's sleeping where? It's a cabin. So half of us are sleeping outside and on decks, and some people are getting rooms. And, you know, we're trying to just getting a little bit settled. And then in the distance, I hear some like really erratic honking. And I look across this little ravine, and there's this old beat-up car kind of driving through potholes, like honking like a wild man. And I'm thinking, man, like, typically when you're drunk driving, you're not trying to get all the attention of the world, but this guy's just beep, 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 just like, what is going on here? And so, you know, a couple minutes goes by, and and he's still, like, driving all around, honking like crazy, trying to figure out what is happening, and then the phone rings, and uh, my wife's mom calls, and she wasn't there, and she says, hey, there's been a fire that's reported, like, in the village, like, right where you are, and uh, I think Gary, said, he turns around and is like, oh, wow, yeah, like that hill is glowing and there is smoke and we're trying to figure out, okay, what, what is going on here? So we walk down a little bit and we see, you can literally see flames and I'm thinking like, you've got to be kidding me right now. Like we just drove six and a half, seven hours to try to get away, to try to get some, you know, nice retreat time together as a staff. and I have PTSD from Alaska, and now here we are, just trying to hang out together, and now the whole place is going to burn down after spending hours driving through the scorched earth. We're trying to figure out, God, what is going on? This has to get better. And so we're, we walk down and, and we see and we're trying to figure, okay, wh- what do we do? And so we kind of head back and I tell everyone, all right, like, like we're going to leave, like pack your stuff, we're going to leave, I'm going to go figure out what the plan is and try to figure out who knows what about this fire. And so uh, we find some people that I know and we start asking around like, hey, what's the plan? and like, well, okay, we're not, per- you know, exactly under mandatory evacuation, but the other side of the creek is, but you should just stay up all night and just watch. And if it gets closer, then you can wake everyone up and- and leave. I'm like, okay, that's a really good idea. And you know, I I love staying up past like 945 to like 11, maybe. Um, JJ can do a good game to like three or four in the morning. I'm good till 11 unless something awesome's happening. Um, But here we go. We're we're trying to figure this out. And so we start praying to God, like, just help this situation, please. Because we just want something better. Like that's all we want is something better. And uh, we pray. And as we walk down, we're bringing everyone down. Hey, come look at the flames. And we go down again. And it's not as bad. Like, huh. Okay. And so we take a little trip and we try to find the, like the, all the firefighters and what's going on. they tell us like, oh, we, uh, we actually were able to, to get a hold of it and you're going to be just fine. And so thank God we were okay. All was well, but there was a serious moment there where your mind's just going, God, just something better, please please just something better, right? And this has been a a theme of life for a lot of us in different ways, just asking God, God, I want something better, right? This is this theme that we've been in this whole summer is this idea that all of us, no matter what it is, have moments, have seasons, have things in our life that we just wish were a little bit better, Right? You, you think about whether it's you know, the political situation of the world, or this last week, man, I don't know how many of you uh, read all of our missionary letters, but we got a letter from Val and Waffle this last week, and if you're just scrolling through that, seeing some of the pictures... Right? Pictures of young children starving and pictures of old seniors on the ground starving. And and you're reading about food insecurity and you're reading about inflation and you're reading about kind of global supply chain. And and just these pictures are making your soul melt and you're crying out, God, like, there has to be something better. There's got to be something better. Like, there's people all over the world who are hurting. We think about all different areas of life, too, where we want things to be better, right? Maybe it's health. Maybe you're going through a season of some sort of cancer, or your body's not working the way it's supposed to. Even just this last week, JJ's like, dude, I'm turning 30, and it hurts, you know? All you 60-year-olds are laughing. JJ, you told that to me wherever you are. My brother-in-law was over yesterday, and he's like, you have no idea. 40 is like, it hurts, And I'm talking to a lot of you, I was talking to Don Snow this last week who had some surgery and he's like, dude, getting a 90 hurts. (laughs) We all know what it's like to long for something better. And in this story in Hebrews, we're, we're looking at this author who's saying, man, all of the longings that we have for something better, they're all fulfilled in one person, right? All of them. Like, we we have these deep longings for whatever it may be, and this author is going to say, Jesus is better than all of it. And and in their context, he gets very specific, and he says, the things that you hold on to the most is the things that you think will give you what you want. Jesus is better than all of that. So he says, he, he goes on this long list of like, man, he's better than Moses, your greatest leader. You know, he, he's better than your whole, like the first five books of the law, the things that you have built your faith on. Jesus is better than that. He's better than the whole sacrificial system. Like you think that you can get close to God and you can have your sins forgiven by sacrificing animals. And, and there's partial truth to that, but Jesus is better and gives us better access to all of this. He's better. Jesus is better. And for us, when we know who Jesus really is, Then and only then will the better that we all long for really be in front of us. Because when we know Jesus in his fullness, and when we know that when we dwell with him, that is the best possible thing, better than anything else, right? Like better than getting the job you've always wanted, or getting the spouse you've always wanted, or getting the retirement you've always wanted, better than whatever you've wanted. He says, being with God is better than all of it. And what's interesting, he builds for 11 chapters about how much better Jesus is than everything. And there's kind of this peak at the middle of chapter 10, where he says, if you know Jesus, if you know that he's better than everything, this is what will happen. Follow me. Go to chapter 10 real quick. This is so crucial to our lives and to this time in history right now. He says this starting in verse 19. In 1019, he says, if Jesus is better than everything else, therefore... Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And listen to this. This is the call to you and I who believe Jesus is better. He says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Did you get that? For 10 chapters, he says, Jesus is literally better than everything. And if you believe that he asks us to do two things. He says, meet together. And when you meet together, stir one another on towards love and good works. I think it's fascinating that 2,000 years ago, the church needed to hear, if you believe in the gospel, if you believe that Jesus is better, you better gather together. This is really, really, really important. There's something that happens when we we do whatever parties together on Friday nights, or when you're having a meal with someone in your home, or when you're meeting a friend over coffee, whatever it is, or when you're gathering in Sunday mornings, that we meet together and we ask the good questions. Right? We stir one another on towards love and good works, he says. This is so important, and my goodness, it's so important right now. Like, maybe more than ever, like, I think you could have gone 2019 and said, it's super important to meet together. Right? In 2019, I'd have been up here saying multiple times because I did it saying, man, we are lonely and we are separated, and the gospel calls us to be united. Right, and then you look at what happened the last three years, last couple years, and you want to talk about sadness and loneliness, where we are as a society, we have to be a people who meet together. Man, I was reading back in April an article from The Atlantic, and it was titled, Why American Teens Are So Sad. And just listen to the first three sentences of this article. It says, the United States is experiencing an extreme teenage mental health crisis. From 2009 to 2021, the share of American high school students who say they feel persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness rose from 26 to 44%. This is the highest level of teenage sadness ever recorded. And then you look at teenage girls, of which someday I will have three, that number jumps to 57%. That's six in 10 and here's a terrifying statistic. It says this. During the pandemic, more than one out of four teenage girls seriously contemplated suicide. And you think about that's, that's the world that we're living in. Like this is real. This is right here. This is what happens when we're isolated. Right? And it's not out there. It's here. Two weeks ago, I was talking to a, a president of a fraternity in Corvallis. And he come up to me after church on Sunday and said, hey, we are struggling with mental health right now. I so there are multiple guys in my fraternity who are recently trying to figure out how to end their lives. What can we do about this? We are a people who are sad and depressed and isolated. And the author of Hebrews is going to say, hey, if you believe Jesus is better, like you got to belong to other people. And when you belong to other people, you have to spur one another on towards love and good works And so good job being here today, right? This is part of it, right? This is part of spurring one another on towards love and good works. This is part of seeing something bigger, that you belong to something better, that we all are a part of a bigger kingdom, that we have a future that is promised to us, a heavenly city as we talk about in Hebrews chapter 11. But man, we got to do more than just gather together too, right? We got to be invested in individual people. Right? We've got to have faith that there is something better, that we can live for something greater, which is why Christians right now ought to be a bright light in a dark place. Right? I, I've said this before. I think one of our greatest apologetics right now is simply having a spirit that says, I've got hope when a lot of people don't. Right? And here's the beautiful thing, and we're going to get into our text, I promise you. We can have hope despite the hardship, right? Because what does he say right after this in chapter 10? In the end of chapter 10, he goes on and he says to the people, he says, Hey, I know you've been experiencing hardship. And he talks about properties getting plundered. He says, many of you have had things that have been stolen from you. You've experienced all kinds of oppression from the government. He says, but you can have confidence and you can have endurance. And why does he say this? Verse 35, confidence, endurance. You are built for a city that is to come. You see this in chapter 10, verse 34, 35 and then chapter 11 the book that this the chapter that we've been studying exists to give us examples of people who have been living through this hardship to say hey no there is hope despite the fact that life may throw you all kinds of challenges and we've seen men after man after woman after woman who have gone through all kinds of things and god has been faithful to them through the hardship really to tell us have faith hold on something better's coming And so that's what we've been studying, this whole idea of holding on. It's a slow and narrow road to follow Jesus, right? And this has been true for a long time. And historically speaking, like the church hasn't always been this like, hey, let's all gather and have this fun, happy barbecue band, whatever celebration. I mean, there's times where people are in caves alone by themselves and they're holding on to the same word that we have. And this word says, hey, it's a long road. It's a lonely road. Sometimes you fall off the road. Sometimes your spouse doesn't join you on this road. Sometimes your kids are nowhere to be seen. But this road is worth it because there is a future at the end of this road that has glory with it. And so he's going to remind us there are men and women who have done this before. You can do this. And so we're going to pick it up here with another story of another man um, who we've actually looked at the past couple weeks with Ron of someone who went there before, who had faith, who God did something profound through a very bizarre story. So let's go Hebrews 11 verse 17. I'm going to ask that you'd stand. We're going to read this together. And by together, I'm not going to quite go wrong. I'm going to read it and we can have different ways of doing things. That's great. Hebrews 11 verse 17. I'm going to read out of the English standard version. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can grab a seat. Some of you probably grew up in Sunday school, I imagine, and you heard this story as a kid. Some of you are very familiar with it. Some of you are not. This is a new story, and the reality is, very much like Noah, I think this is a very strange story. It's a, in some ways, you, you read this, and it's like, what in the world is happening right here? Like, what kind of God is this? You think about, I think, on an initial reading, you think, oh, that happened a long time ago. Maybe that wasn't that weird. But you think about what today, like if God was to say, hey, I want you to kill your child. You're thinking like, what kind of sick, twisted God is this? But God is the same today, yesterday, and forever. So it's the same God who asked Abraham to do that. So what in the world is this all about? But I I think sometimes in the Bible, we get to certain texts, and it's kind of like if you were to watch just a certain clip in the middle of the movie, and you'd have no idea what the movie is about just by seeing one little clip. And I think this is one of those stories where you pull out that clip and you say, really? I don't don't know that I want to give my life to a God like this, because this feels very strange. So we're going to look at this story today, and we're going to look at what what was God after when he was after this sacrifice? And, and this whole idea of testing, what is that about? Why would God test us? You know, is it, who's this a test really for? So as we look at that, we're going to kind of backtrack a little bit. I know uh, Ron covered a lot of this in the last couple of weeks. but let's look at this story of Abraham and kind of where he came from. Because where he comes from has a whole lot to do with this moment that we pick up in verse 17 on. So in Genesis chapter 12 is the first time that God calls out to this man named Abram. We call, we'll call him Abraham from here on out because his name gets changed eventually. And God calls him, in. from everything that we know, he's not a follower of God at this point. Right? Joshua 24.2 tells us that his parents followed pagan idols, um, pagan gods, and, and we have no uh, specific indication that he was a God follower. But God calls him and he says, hey, I am going to use you. And I'm going to use you to be a blessing to the world. You will have offspring. And through the world, people will know me. He says, I'm going to take you to a place. I'm going to give you a land. You will be a people. And and Abraham says, all right, like, I'm in. Where are we going? So he takes him and he goes to this place called Canaan. They get to Canaan and God makes a promise to him six verses later. In chapter 12, verse 6, listen to what God says to Abraham. He says, to your offspring... I will give you this land. And oh, by the way, he's 75 years old and he has no children, right? So to a 75-year-old childless man, God takes him to a foreign place and he says, I'm going to give you this land. So, so Abraham's like, all right, like, I, this, this is good. And then what's the very next thing that happens? Famine, which is a little bit confusing when you, know, you, you hear a voice from God saying, hey, I, I got you, I'm gonna take you somewhere. I'm gonna give you a land. I'm gonna give you a lot of, uh, of descendants, Then there's famine. And then they have this moment where they're trying to figure out, okay, what do we do with our life? And so they flee and they go down to Egypt. And Ron shared the story of all the catastrophe that happened down there and the the shortcuts that Abraham tried to pull off. This is my sister, really bad idea. Don't try to do that. But you got to believe that there's these, these years in there where Abraham's thinking like, Lord, like you made this promise to me But I'm not seeing a whole lot here. After a while, after Egypt, they head back up north. It's about ten years have gone by, still no kids. In chapter 15 of Genesis, we read this, God reaffirms his promise. Chapter 15, verse 1, he says, And these things the word, or after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Look toward heaven, the number of stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. So he's got 10 years. He's got multiple promises from God. He's got famine in the midst of this. You know, he's a refugee. He's trying to figure out, God, what are you doing with these promises? And nothing seems to be happening. And we all know what that's like right? We all know what it's like to, to have a longing, to have a desire, maybe even to have something you feel like is a promise from the Lord. And you're just waiting on that. And you're waiting and you're waiting and you're waiting. And maybe sometimes we try to take action into our own hands and, and that turns out disastrous. But here's Abraham and he's like, God, I don't know when and how, but I'm going to try to just mumble my way forward until eventually you're going to fulfill this promise that you have made for me he continues on in about another 15 years. The guy's 99 years old, right? 25 years after God says, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you a people. He gets another visitor in Genesis chapter 17, verse eight. Listen to what God says. He says, I will give to you and to your offspring after you, the land of your sojournings. All the land of Canaan in everlasting possession, and I will be their God. I want you to hear that because it's going to be important for later. And one year from now, I'm going to come back and you're going to have a kid. And at the end of Genesis chapter 21, they have a kid. His name's is Isaac. And that's the end of chapter 21. They have a kid. And it's like, finally, 25 years later, God, you've been faithful. And then the very next thing that happens. So this, this, is, this is so frustrating in some ways, but it's also condensed narrative. The very next thing that happens in chapter 22, you don't have like, and they had a great childhood and preschool was amazing and he was on the T-ball team. You get none of that. You get chapter 22. Listen to verse 1 of chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Like, man, this seems really strange. It seems very bizarre that God would make a promise that for 25 years, I'm gonna give you a son and the son is gonna have all kinds of offspring and you're gonna be inhabitants of this land and the world will know me through you. And then the very next thing he says, and I want you to kill your son. Like what is happening there? First of all, what is happening with the whole sacrifice thing? Because that feels really messed up, right? Like that feels so wrong. It feels so barbaric. That doesn't seem like the loving, kind God that I know. What is that about? And then what's this testing thing about? Like, does God really not know what Abraham's going to do? Like, is he sitting here saying like, huh, I wonder if you're going to follow me. I have no idea. I don't think so. Like I I went to seminary. I took Christian philosophy. I know that God knows all actuals and all counterfactuals. God knows everything that I'm going to do in any given situation, whether it's an actual situation or whether it's a hypothetical situation in any given possible world. God knows all that. So what is this testing about? What does it mean that he's testing Abraham? And what does it mean to pass this test? So let's talk about child sacrifice first. I'm going to give you what I think is my best understanding of what God was doing here. And, and we don't always get the exact like biblical spell out of this is why God did this. But I think this is a pretty good peek into God's heart here and why he's asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. To understand the story, you got to go back to Noah. Three weeks ago, I was preaching on Noah. And you remember uh, Noah was the guy, all the animals horrible story, uh, but God's good through it, right? God's sparing mankind. He's a generous God of second chances. And at the end of the story of Noah, we have this absolute catastrophe, right? At the end of the story of Noah, what does he do? He, the boats landed, all the animals are gone, and He plants a vineyard, and he starts kind of reestablishing his life, and he's a winemaker and apparently a drunk at some point, and he gets drunk, and he passes out naked, and it brings a ton of shame on his family, and his sons see him, and his son Ham in particular sees him. He tells his other brothers, and they cover him up, but when Noah wakes up, he says to his son Ham, he says, man, you've brought shame upon me, so I'm going to curse you and your son, and your son's name's Canaan. And you think about this curse that Noah makes on his son, uh, Ham, and his son, Canaan. And from that moment, you have this whole lineage of people who left, who did not follow the Lord anymore, and who started chasing after pagan gods. These people called the Canaanites. One of their their primary gods was a god by the name of Molech. And we read about um, what worship to Molech looks like all throughout the Bible. And the primary way that Molech was worshipped was through what? Was through child sacrifice. And you read about God's hatred towards child sacrifice. You read about this in Psalm 106. You read about it in Second Kings 21. And you read about it in Leviticus chapter 20. And what was the land that God was giving Abraham? I read it back in chapter 15, verse 8. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. So here you have Abraham surrounded by a people who the way that they worship God, their gods, their false gods, is by sacrificing their children. And a lot of commentators believe that not only is it the land that he's currently in, but perhaps that where he came from, all that he knew was other people who sacrificed their children to a God. And strangely enough, to what they thought was a fertility God. And so here's Abraham, and you got to be with him in this moment. God is asking me to kill my child, and you got to believe there's part of him that's going, man, it seems like you're just like every other God out there. You know, all my life, and, and as I'm seeing everything around me, all these people are trying to kill their children in hopes of a better future, and God, you're just like everyone else. You know, and in Hebrews, we get this little insight into what he was thinking. In Hebrews 11, we we get the insight that he believed that God could raise him from the dead, but he still had to go through this action. And so here's Abraham, God, are you just like everyone else? Right? So we think about today and we think about what that would be like for us. And this is us looking around saying, is following you worth it? Or is it just like everyone else doing their own thing? Because i got a lot of friends and i got a lot of family who don't follow the Lord and their life seems to be doing okay. Like, Is following you worth it or are you just like everyone else? Does any of this actually matter or is it all kind of the same thing in the end anyways? You think about what it looks like to follow the Lord or what it looks like to be a Muslim or what it looks like to be an agnostic or what it looks like to be an atheist. And at some point, some people are asking, does any of it matter anyways? And here's Abraham, God, are you like everyone else wanting my child? So what's the test then? What's the test for Abraham? Abraham, do you trust me? You think I'm different than any of the other gods around here? You think I'm different than any of the other options that the world has to offer? Are you willing to give me what is most precious to you, to see what I will give you in return. Do you trust that I'm worth waiting 25 years for? And let's be clear, this wasn't a test for God to know Abraham. This is a test for Abraham to know God. So what happens in the story? Abraham says, all right, I'm in. And he takes his son, and everyone argues and debates about how old his son was. Some people say he was seven. Some people say he was up to 33. Who knows? But he binds his son, and he takes him to this place and he builds an altar and he puts his son on the altar and he's about to kill him and verse 11 says this but the angel of the lord called out from heaven and said abraham abraham and he said to him here i am he said do not lay a hand on the boy or do anything to him for i know that you fear god seeing you have not withheld your son your only son from me and abraham lifted up his eyes and looked and behold behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horn's And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The Lord will provide. I love that. As I said earlier, Abraham had a belief that if he killed his child, God would raise him back from the dead, but there's still part of him that says, man, maybe you're a little bit better than the other gods, but maybe you're a whole lot more like them. But instead, God blows away his expectations, and he provides. You think about what it's like to to look around our world and to to desire something better right you go back to some of the things we were talking about earlier whether it's looking at the pictures of people starving right now or whether it's looking at war or whether it's looking at war in our own homes and our own neighborhoods whether it's looking at all these desires of something better and the world only has a few options of what to do with these deep desires right what are our options either a god doesn't exist and if god doesn't exist what in the world do you do with pictures of people starving and not only just pictures, but people in real life in front of you. If God doesn't exist, this is a cruel world. Like, and maybe we're the one percenters who we have enough food and everything's okay here. But it's a cruel world if God doesn't exist. Right? Or the other option is, you have a bunch of gods who the way to get to them is to buy, by doing more and more better things. And if you're good enough, then you'll get to heaven. Right? Well, we've been trying to be good enough for a long time. And where has that led us? We need something better. We need a God who says, you know what, you can't do it. You can't do it on your own. You won't do it on your own. But I'll provide. I'll provide in your place. And so we look at how God provides. What does God provide? Ultimately, he provides connection back to him. In a world where we have all kinds of hurt and pain, he provides two things. He provides a future. Right, and the future is what Ron talked about last week with such beautiful clarity, this future that we have with God in heaven. But we don't only have a future, we have a path to get there, and that's through this cross. Right, this cross where Jesus gave his life, where God provided a sacrifice for us that said, you can have access to me. And we get that because God provides. And as we end, there is a test to get there. And it's the same test that Abraham had. Do you trust me? Do you trust that I'm going to provide? But in order to trust that I'm going to provide, there, there is a test that says you gotta give up something. You gotta give up something that you want to hold on to more than anything. Abraham had to give up, he had to be willing to give up his son. And so for us, I guess the question for us as we end today is what are we willing to give up? To say, I trust you, Lord what is that thing? I mean, we've all got something. I mean, even this next week, as you're thinking about, what would it look like to follow God this week in my life? This week to say, God, you provide. I got to give something up. Maybe it's trust in myself. Uh, A lot of us have this disease. I'm pretty good at this myself. Trusting in myself. I've got what it takes to do what I need to do. Maybe we need to lay that down. Maybe it's, maybe it's a disease of, oh, the future is just going to be so much better because this and this and this is going to happen when all these little things just come into place. Right? Maybe it's laying that down. Maybe it's laying down the hope of whatever future version of your life you think you might have and say, God, I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do. Ultimately, the sacrifice was made by God himself to bring us to him. And if that's true, I'm going to go back to what we talked about in chapter 10. I'm going to end on this. And then we're going to take a time of communion, celebrating and thanking God that He was the one who provided. If it's true that Jesus is better, listen to these words again. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. God, I thank you that you are faithful. God, I thank you that as we look at this story and we see a man here, Abraham, who you made a promise to for 25 years and said, I will give you something. And then who had to fumble his way through life for 25 years saying, God, I don't know if you can provide. And then when you did provide, he had to ask, God, are you just like everyone else? Is following you worth it? Is it worth it to be committed to a church? God, is it worth it? To be committed to serving? Is it worth it to be in small groups? Is it worth it to take relationships to that next level? Or should I just be like everyone else doing their own thing? And ultimately, through the the question of is it worth it, Jesus, you provide. And you've provided a way for us to get to know you. You've provided us a, a freedom from my own sin and my own shame and my own guilt. You've given us a future city, a heavenly city. But you've also given me a heavenly world now where you say, God, Or where you say, it's my job to bring heaven on earth. And so God, let us hold fast to the hope that we have. God, let us look at these stories of men and women who had faith. Let us have the same faith. And let us bring hope to the world that needs it. Jesus, here we're going to take some communion. We're going to take a moment where we're going to say thank you for your life that God, you provided. We love you, Jesus. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.